Welcome to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. My guest again is Dr. Stephen Meyer. As you know, we had Steve on last week for the first of two installments on his brand new excellent book called Return of the God Hypothesis. Steve, I'm seeing the book is going up on Amazon quite well. It's getting very good reviews. Well, we had a great first day and it's uh, uh, good, great to be back. And it was great to get to reach out to your audience last weekend. We saw a big movement in uh, interest last weekend when the first of our two interviews aired on uh, American Family Radio. So thanks for having me on. Well, we're looking forward to the second interview here. You know, the first time we were on last week, Steve, we covered a little bit about the first of what you call three main arguments or three main evidences that theism looks like it's true. Can you just kind of go over the three briefly and we'll spend a little bit of time on the first argument and then we'll delve more deeply into the next two. Yeah, exactly. The subtitle of the book is uh, Three Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And the first of those discoveries is, the, is that as best we can tell from both observational astronomy and from theoretical physics, the universe had a beginning. The physical universe had a beginning. The second discovery is that from the beginning and soon thereafter, the basic parameters of physics, the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe were set to allow for the possibility of life. This is sometimes called the, the, the fine-tuning evidence. And then the third discovery is that since the beginning of the universe, there have been uh, large bursts of new information, uh, digital information in the, mo uh, the molecules at the foundation of life uh, that have... Uh, uh, that are responsible for the origin of life and the origin of subsequent forms of life. So we have the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and then the, the discovery of information at the, in the molecules at the foundation of life. Now, Steve, last week, and our listeners are going to have to go back and listen to last week's podcast, because we spent a lot of time, we talked a lot about the laws of nature themselves. Where do they come from? Do they cause anything? We also talked a little bit about the evidence for the beginning of the universe. Uh, one thing I've noticed is that when atheists are claiming that uh, you have evidence for the beginning of the universe from cosmology, they will come up and say, well, there's a new model coming up or someone has proposed a new model that somehow gets rid of the beginning. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, the new model they're talking about is something called quantum cosmology. And I have three chapters about that in the book, and they're among my favorites. <laughs> in that, uh, uh, what I show is that even if quantum cosmology is the correct model of the origin of the universe, it too has theistic implications for several uh, unappreciated reasons. Uh, that is, even though it's used in, in, in uh, scientific atheist polemics. Uh, it actually has theistic implications. The first thing about quantum cosmology is it doesn't actually get rid of the beginning. In all the quantum cosmological models, a, a singularity is presupposed that the universe comes out of a singularity. The second thing is that, um, is that what's actually going on with these models is that the physicists uh, are using the mathematics of quantum mechanics to model the origin of the universe as a consequence of something they call the wave function, a mathematical expression that describes the different possible universes that could emerge with different gravitational fields. But the odd thing about this, as some of the quantum cosmologists themselves have noted, is that essentially, therefore, they're modeling the origin of matter, space, time, and energy coming out of pure mathematics. And as Alexander Volinkin, 
uh, one of the leading quantum cosmologists has observed uh, and actually asked, he asked this, asked this rhetorical question at the end of his many worlds in one. What is the tablet upon which these laws could be written? Before there's matter, space, and time, what tablet could these laws be written on? Uh, if if uh, mathematics is in the domain of the mind, are we really saying that mind predates matter, mind predates mm -hmm. the universe. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very curious kind of, uh, it's not a material, if true, uh, uh, quantum cosmology does not have materialistic implications. It has philosophically idealist and arguably theistic implications because it implies mind before matter. Then there, but there's an even deeper um, point to be made, which may be a little hard to follow in an interview, but I'll, I'll give it a whirl anyway. Mm -hmm. And that is that this universal wave function, it has the symbol psi in, uh, in quantum mechanics that describes all the possible universes that could exist out of which our universe would come, is the consequence or the, uh, the product of, of, this, of solving a prior equation. It's called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, and it's the analog of the famous Schrodinger equation in regular quantum mechanics. But the, thing of, the, the interesting thing is that that Wheeler-DeWitt equation has an infinite number of possible solutions unless mathematicians fix very precisely what are called boundary conditions or boundary constraints. They're essentially limiting the degrees of mathematical freedom by their own intelligent choice. There's all kinds of different outcomes they could get, all kinds of different wave functions describing the possible universes. But they choose the boundary conditions as they solve this big equation in order to get a particular outcome that will include our universe as one of the possibilities. And on that condition, they say they've explained the origin of the universe. Well, what's actually going on? When you limit degrees of mathematical freedom, when you say this, not that, and this, not that, uh, you're imparting information. And so in the modeling of the origin of the, uh, of the universe, these quantum cosmologists are using their own intelligent design to input information to get an outcome that they want. So I think what they're actually modeling is, as Stephen Hawking said, ironically, he didn't mean this in a literal sense, but uh, they're modeling the mind of God. Yes, and I think that's a problem that you keep bringing up over and over again in your book, Stephen, and that is that every time they try and explain information, they have to presuppose information already exists in order to actually answer the problem they're trying to get an answer to. Am I right? Right. And this was one of, for me, one of the big discoveries of the, this inquiry into the, the, the into quantum cosmology is just as there's an information problem in biology, where, where does the new code come from that enables us to explain the origin of life or the origin of new forms of life? There's an information problem in cosmology as well, because if we want to get an, if we want to explain our universe with all its beautiful specificity, and by specificity we mean it has these properties and not those properties, you have to have something that 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 is responsible for those choices, if you will. And the the physicists themselves model that choosing. They they make the choices mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a mathematical apparatus, they choose certain sorts of constraints that give them the outcome they want in order to mm -hmm. model a universe like ours. But that suggests that even if they could explain the origin of matter and energy out of math alone, which is quite a trick because math doesn't have those causal powers, they can't uh -huh. explain the origin of the information necessary to, give a, to, to produce a universe like ours and therefore to explain our universe. Yeah, and it seems like they think that math can somehow cause things. And I think your point is, as you 
you point out, and again, we're talking to Stephen Meyer, his brand new book, Return of the God Hypothesis, you need to get friends. We're covering less than 1% of what's in the book in these interviews. So you need to get the book. It's about 500 pages, well-written, easy to understand. He goes into some depth on some of these issues so you can track with him as we go. We're not, we can't cover it all here in the interview. So I highly recommend you get the book. But Steve, I wanna ask you one other thing. I need a point of clarification on the singularity because I've heard the singularity described this way, a point of infinite density. That would seem to me to be a category mistake if we're talking about a physical thing, because you can't have an infinitely dense physical thing. So does this mean that literally when we're talking about a singularity, when we say infinite density, that literally we're talking about the creation out of nothing of all space, time and matter? Well, if we assume general relativity as the as the uh, operative physics in the earliest part of the universe, yes, this is what Stephen Hawking sh first showed in his uh, 1966 PhD dissertation at Cambridge University, and then later proved with more mathematical rigor with first uh, Roger Penrose, uh, the Ox great Oxford physicist, and then George Ellis, the great South African physicist who was a PhD student at Cambridge at the same time as Hawking. And... Uh, they showed that if you go back, and this is actually quite conceptual. The math is difficult, but to understand the concepts underlying the math is not difficult. If we have an expanding universe in the forward direction of time, and the galactic material is stretching, is, is getting further and further uh, uh, dilute, if you will, it's less dense. If you go back in time, the material, the material uh, substance of all those galaxies, the galaxies will get closer and closer together and eventually you'll get to the point where matter becomes infinitely compressed infinitely compressed material uh, substance corresponds in general relativity to an infinite curvature of space and infinite curvature uh, corresponds to zero spatial volume so you, All right, you hold the, the thought, universe Steve, hold the thought. We're, we're coming up on a hard break so hold the okay. thought we're going to okay. be right back with dr stephen meyer the brand new book is return of the god hypothesis don't go anywhere Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamine.org. It's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. I want to mention I'm going to be in Fort Worth, Texas this weekend. Go to our website for details. I'm speaking at a conference on Saturday and then on Sunday at a church there in Fort Worth. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events, Frank Turek calendar. You'll see it there. I hope to see you there in Fort Worth. I'm talking to my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer, whose brand new book is sort of his magnum opus, Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries Revealing the Mind Behind the Universe. And Steve, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that a singularity seems to indicate that the universe came literally from nothing. And you were describing how that could be so from general relativity. Could you pick it up right there? Yeah, yeah, we were trying to explain general relativity and the solution <laughs> to the field equations uh, <laughs> before the bumper music. Yeah, That's that right. 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 Let's try it again. So, uh, yeah, conceptually, in Einstein's theory of general relativity, a theory of gravity, 
uh, dense concentrations of matter actually curve the fabric of space, or what he called space-time, because space and time are connected in relativity. So you could think of a bowling ball on a trampoline causing that uh, the, the surface of the trampoline to create a kind of depression. If you put a tennis ball on the edge of the trampoline, it will, it will roll towards the bowling ball. That's roughly the kind of concept Einstein has in mind, except there's no, there's no trampoline surface. It's space itself that is curved. Now, that means, and this is what Stephen Hawking was thinking about during his PhD dissertation as a, as a young uh, PhD student in the 1960s. He's thinking about black holes, how they curve space so tightly that nothing, even light, can get out of them. But if you, if you think about the expanding universe, where the galaxies are moving outward in the forward direction of time, and then back extrapolate in your mind's eye, the galaxies would be getting closer and closer and closer together, and eventually the matter would all congeal causing space to curve extremely tightly. And as you keep going back further in time, you reach a limiting case where the curvature of space goes to an infinite. And infinite curvature, an infinitely tight curved space corresponds to zero spatial volume. And at that point, that marks the beginning of time, but it also marks the beginning of space because if there's no, and the beginning of the universe itself, because I, as I used to ask my students, if, if there's no space, if, if there's no spatial volume, how much, how much stuff can you put in that? How much stuff can you put in no space? Answer is none. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a picture of, of essentially creatio ex nihilo, the creation out of nothing physical. The um, British physicist Paul Davies has said that before the singularity, the singularity marks is essentially the beginning of the universe before which there's no possibility of physical reasoning because there's no physics there. There's no matter space, time, or energy that could cause that origin. Now, that's the picture of the origin of the universe based on general relativity. What we were talking about in the last segment is another model of, of cosmo cosmological origins called quantum cosmology, which was devised and has been devised in a sense to circumvent this problem of the ultimate beginning. By And, and there's a, there is a physical justification for this because we can't be absolutely sure that general relativity applies all the way back to the beginning when, because when things are so small, then quantum effects would kick in, quantum fluctuations and the like. But then even on that other model of of, of origins, of, of cosmological origins, there are these implicit, um, or, or there are these tacit theistic implications that, that you have a universe coming out of math alone, which is very weird because math is conceptual and exists in the realm of minds and nowhere else. And to solve the math that you need to solve to model the origin of the universe, there needs to be an input of information which is always coming from the theoretical physicist, the modeler, is coming from intelligent design. So mm -hmm. whether you take a strict general relativistic view of the origin of the universe or a quantum cosmological view, in both cases you have, um, first of all, in both cases you have a beginning, and secondly, you have theistic implications either way. Yes, and, and this is why, as you point out in the book, Steve, that if space, time, and matter had a beginning, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, because space, time, and matter didn't exist. So you, you must have some cause beyond the universe, beyond nature. And yet capable of initiating a new event, mm -hmm. of, of, of mm -hmm. causing a change of states from, in this case, nothing physical to everything physical. Uh, you also so point it, out that- that, that, even, suggest, that suggests the activity of a mind again. Yes, and you also point out that even if the science changes on this, what doesn't change is the fact that you can't have an infinite number of days before today. You talk about that when you reference the column cosmological argument here. Again, the book is called Return of the God Hypothesis, my guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer. So I think it's, it's, it's 
It's quite well established that the universe had a beginning, and it seems, therefore, it must have had a beginner. But Steve, let's move on to the second discovery, the three of the great discoveries, the second of the three great discoveries you talk about in this book, and that's the fine-tuning of the universe. And I think there are at least two aspects of this, in my reading of it anyway, and that is there are the initial conditions of the universe which seem fine-tuned, and then there are the the current conditions or the natural laws and the, the, the constants that go into those natural laws. Can you start with the initial conditions? How do we know that the universe is fine-tuned from its very inception? Well, uh, Roger Penrose, whom I mentioned just a few minutes ago, made some very interesting calculations about the, in, it's called the initial entropy fine-tuning, and where mm-hmm. entropy uh, relates to um, um, the whole concept of order and disorder. You know, So we have a highly ordered universe now, and because there's been a massive amount of energy that has been released in causing the universe to expand through a force called the cosmological constant. Uh, If the universe is highly ordered now, it must have been even more highly ordered at the beginning in order to get that order. It'd be like, uh, Mm. uh, you know, think of a toddler through a room. After the toddler's done with it, it's going to be more disordered or or a tornado Mm -hmm. through a junkyard. So if if you're releasing energy to cause the expansion of the universe, the initial state must have been even more ordered than it is now to give us the orderly state that makes possible now. Penrose made calculations as to just how orderly it must have been, and his calculation suggests that the fine-tuning of the initial arrangement of matter and energy is uh, hyper-exponentially precise. His calculation showed that uh, the number was one part in 10 to the 10th raised to the 123rd power. Now, there aren't enough elementary particles in the universe to represent all the zeros in that number. So mm. that, that's, a, and when we're talking about fine-tuning, it might be helpful to, especially for engineers who are aware of the concept of tolerances. We're talking about getting something just right, the just right or Goldilocks universe, where if uh, certain forces are too strong or too weak by even a little bit in either direction, if the masses of the elementary particles are too heavy or too light, if the speed of light is too fast or too slow, if that expansion rate of the universe is too fast or too slower, if the force governing that expansion is too strong or too weak, by even a tiny bit in each direction, life, uh, we, we will not get a life-conducive universe. And, and so uh, Fred Hoyle, who discovered some of these first fine-tuning parameters, uh, in fact, the ones that are necessary to um, account for the abundance of carbon in our universe, said that a common-sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics to, and chemistry to make life possible. And, and uh, so the, for many physicists, the fine-tuning has seemed uh, uh, logically to lead to the need for a fine-tuner, for an intelligent designer. Now, Steve, they've tried to avert this or get around this fine-tuning by coming up with the multiple universe theory or the fact that there are other universes out there. First of all, let me ask you this question. Before the fine-tuning of the universe was known, and it, it started to be discovered, say, about 60, 70 years ago, did anyone even suggest there were other universes out there? Well, no, but there are physical, um, there, there, there are justifications in certain physical theories for the concept of a multiverse. But the, the once, once those were realized, people appropriated the multiverse as an explanation for the fine-tuning. Uh, the problem is that the fine-tuning Uh, the the multiverse doesn't actually explain away the ultimate fine-tuning of the universe. Let me explain. Mm. Uh, If you have all these other universes out there, the idea is, well, then, therefore, eventually, one like ours will will emerge. Therefore, as improbable as all these parameters seem from 
the vantage point of just the processes that work in our universe. If we have uh, multiple gabillions of other universes out there, uh, then we can render the fine-tuning uh, parameters somewhere probable. We can say that it's eventually the, the right conditions would have to arise. But if these other universes are causally disconnected from our own, and indeed, that's what we mean by universe. It's a causally closed system, everything that is. But if there are other everything that, that is ex in existence universes, but if they're, if they're not causally connected, then they don't affect anything in this universe, including the probabilities, the processes that would have set the fine-tuning parameters. So in mm. order to de depict our universe as the winner of a kind of cosmic lottery, the, the multiverse proponents have needed to formulate uh, or propose universe generating mechanisms uh, kind of, that would function as kind of common causes for the origin of all these universes so that then we could portray our universe as, as the lucky winner of a great cosmic lottery where lots of universes are being spit out all the time. Now, the, there are two different um, speculative cosmological models that that generate these universe generating mechanisms. One is called inflationary cosmology, and the other is called string theory. And in both these cosmological models, the universe generating mechanisms themselves require prior, exquisite, unexplained fine tuning. And so mm. you don't get rid of the fine tuning, you just push it back one, one generation and, and leave it unexplained. And yet there is a, an explanation for what we mean by fine tuning. Uh, if we talk about a French recipe or an internal combustion engine or a piece of Swiss watch, uh, a Swiss watch or uh, a section of digital code, and we say that these fine-tuned systems, we mean there's a whole bunch of independent parameters that are highly improbable, but yet collectively the, the set of those parameters achieves a discernible function or outcome. And so fine-tuning in our experience is always the consequence in all those other examples of intelligent design of a mind. So the only known explanation for fine-tuning is intelligence. The multiverse hasn't provided an ultimate explanation for fine-tuning. It leaves it unexplained, suggesting that even if the multiverse is true, we still have a powerful argument for intelligent design. Yeah, you know, the agnostic Paul Davies, you mentioned him earlier, he's an astronomer. He calls the multiverse a dodge because he realizes nobody would be suggesting this unless they were trying to explain away fine-tuning the evidence for fine-tuning. I had a conversation in private with one of my uh, friendlier atheistic debating partners in a car ride back to the airport after the debate. And I asked him, he was telling me about his deconversion experience from Christianity to, uh, to atheism. And he said, it was because of the success of science. And I started asking him about the things that I think, uh, you know, scientific discoveries that materialism doesn't explain. And, and he said, yeah, but there's, there's, there's the multiverse. And I said, yeah, but do you, you, do you believe in the multiverse? He said, nah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, it, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's uh, the the uh, the Stanford physicist uh, Leonard Susskind said, well, <clears throat> if we didn't have the multiverse, we'd be hard pressed to answer the ID critics. And so I think there is a metaphysical or philosophical uh, uh, motivation for for holding to the multiverse. Well, even if they've got the multiverse, they still can't answer you because, as you just mentioned, you would need some sort of fine-tuned universe generator to make it work. Anyway, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek and Dr. Stephen Meyer, his brand-new book, Return to the God Hypothesis. A lot more right after the break. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, second week in a row. And the reason we're doing two shows on this is because this seminal work needs to have a lot of attention given to it because you're going to learn quite a bit about the evidence for God from three scientific discoveries that, that Steve says reveals the mind of God or reveals the mind behind the universe. As you probably already know, Steve has his PhD in philosophy of science from Cambridge University. He's written other great books like Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, and this is sort of his magnum opus. Now, Steve, prior to the break, we were talking about the uh, fine-tuning argument and uh, the atheists don't really have a good argument, counter-argument for that. In fact, Christopher Hitchens, so I had the opportunity to debate a couple of times, said, yeah, the fine-tuning argument is the hardest problem to answer. But it also seems that there's information and fine-tuning in the third discovery that you sort of made famous uh, with your signature in the cell book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, the information we find in biology? Right. In, in fact, I would argue that the fine-tuning in biology as represented by that information is even more compelling as an evidence for a, a, a prior intelligence. Uh, the, as, as finely tuned as the universe is and in, in its basic physics, the, the, the complexity and the informational complexity of biological organisms actually exceeds that. The life is, in a sense, the culmination of, of, of the whole process. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the story really starts in, um, 1953, Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of DNA in their famous paper that they published in Nature magazine, or Nature, the great British science publication, um, nine, a 900-word article, but a hugely important idea, and they elucidate the structure of DNA. Uh, in 1957, 1958, Crick formulates something called the sequence hypothesis, where he suggests that the chemical subunits that run along the interior of the DNA molecules. So you've got the double helix, but then there are these these in, these subunits called bases or nucleotide bases that run along the interior of the helix. And they form a long um, linear array of these, these, these chemicals. He proposes that these bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language, or the digital characters like zeros and ones that we would use in software, which is to say that they do not perform a function in biologically in virtue of their physical properties, their shapes or their molecular weights or, or uh, anything else, but instead because of their arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention. And he suggests that the arrangement of these bases it, are providing instructions for directing the, uh, the construction of proteins. Now, by 1965, his sequence hypothesis is confirmed, and what is revealed is that, yes, indeed, there is a symbol convention. We now call it the, the, genetic co uh, the genetic code. So we have a code, and we also have a text. And the information in DNA being translated by the code is directing the construction of protein. So we have a, what's been dis what is discovered is something akin to what we now use in modern manufacturing where computers are, are running the show called CAD CAM, Computer Assistant Design and Engineering, where a, 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 a 
for example, the Boeing plant here in Seattle, you might have an engineer sitting at a console writing code for building an airplane wing. The code would go down a wire. We translated it into a machine code that could be read at the manufacturing center. And then that information would be used in the Boeing case to put rivets on the airplane wing in, a, in exactly the right specifications in accord with the, with the engineer specifications. Um, that's precisely the kind of technology that's at work in the tiniest recesses of even the simplest cells. We have digital information directing the construction of mechanical parts or mechanical systems, uh, proteins and protein machines that are necessary to maintain cellular life. So we have, a, we have digital information and a complex information transmission, storage, and processing system at the foundation of every living cell. Now that is a, a mind-blowing level of integrated complexity that no one anticipated. And based on our experience, our uniform and repeated experience, we know of only one cause for the origin of information. Bill Gates, our local hero here in Seattle, says <laughs> DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever devised. Richard Dawkins himself acknowledges that the DNA contains machine code. Leroy Hood, the great biotech uh, pioneer, uh, also here in our area, simply describes DNA as containing digital code. Well, where does, where does such digital information always come from in our experience? Mm. Programs always come from programmers. And in fact, whenever we see information, especially in a digital or an alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process, whether we're talking about a computer program or a section of text in a book or a hieroglyphic inscription or information in a radio signal, information the hallmark of mind. It always comes from intelligence. In fact, one of the early pioneers in the application of information theory to molecular biology said uh, that the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life in these great biomacromolecules is evidence, I argue, in, first in signature in the cell, but I reprise that argument in this book. Um, it's evidence of the activity of a designing intelligence in the origin and in the history of life. Now, Steve, I can hear the atheists and skeptics already saying, you're just engaged in a God of the gaps argument, Dr. Meyer. That doesn't work. Now, you have a whole chapter in return of the God hypothesis about the God of the gaps argument. Give us a couple minutes on why that charge against this argument does not hold water. Right. Uh, well, God of the gaps arguments are, uh, from, a, from the standpoint of logic and logical, informal logical fallacies, they would be uh, um, what are called arguments from ignorance. It would be an argument of the following form. Well, I think that this particular physical phenomenon was, I can show that it was not caused by this proposed cause A. Therefore, B must have done it. Well, that would be an, an argument from ignorance because you're not providing positive evidence for this alternative cause B as the reason for that physical phenomenon. Um, that's not the kind of argument that uh, proponents of intelligent design make. In the case of the DNA uh, and the information in DNA, I go very carefully through the different models, of, chem uh, for example, of the chemical evolutionary origin of the information in, in DNA and the origin of life. And I show that in each case, these different models fail for very specific scientific reasons to account for that information. But I'm not arguing for intelligent design solely based on the failure of materialistic evolutionary explanations to explain the origin of information, but rather also because we have positive, independent mm -hmm. evidence of the power of intelligent agents to generate kind of information that we find in living cells. The, the kind of information in, in DNA that we find is not what's called Shannon information, if 
engineers will know what that's about. It's a mere, it's essentially mere, a mere, merely complex arrangement of characters that isn't necessarily functional. But what we find in DNA is specified and functional information, and it's, and it is in fact uh, conveyed in a digital form. Now, information of that type, in our experience, always arises from a mind. So we have. Uh, in, based on our uniform and repeated experience, the, 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 uh, the basis of all scientific reasoning, we have independent knowledge of the causal powers of intelligent agents to generate information of the kind that we find in life, absent the ability to go back and look exactly what happened to cause it. The best explanation for that, therefore, is the, the, uh, is intelligent design. Here, here's, a, here's a little thought experiment people could do. Imagine you go into a cave in Antarctica, and you're an archaeologist, and you assume that because of the great, you know, the, the very cold temperatures there, no, no people have ever lived in Antarctica. But you go into a cave, and inside the cave you find hieroglyphic inscriptions, pictures of, of prehistoric animals. And underneath the inscriptions you find little uh, characters. And after a while you're able to, to decode and see the associations between the characters and the pictures, and you realize, oh, this is a written language. Now, what should you infer? Even though you didn't know that there had ever been intelligent life on Antarctica, if you found such a thing, because you know there's one and only one cause of the origin of information, you're going to infer that there was an, an intelligent form of life there prior to your arrival. And uh, that's essentially what we found, not in a cave, but in the recess of the cell, D information in a digital form. And again, not an argument from ignorance. We wouldn't say the archaeologist was guilty of a, of a scribes mm -hmm. of the gap argument the, 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 the archaeologists who decoded the rosetta stone were not guilty of the scribes of the gap they were using their knowledge of cause and effect to their positive knowledge of cause and effect to infer the most likely explanation so it's this is a, a, an argument based on knowledge of cause and effect not ignorance now we're not, uh, not a gaps Yes. Now, as, as you point out in the book, again, the book is called Return of the God Hypothesis. We're arguing from effect to cause. We have an effect known as a digital code. And so we're trying to discover what could have caused that effect. And as you point out, in all of our experience, when you get a code like that, when you get a message, when you get what looks like a software program, you know a mind must be behind it. And in another part of the book, I'm looking right now on page 240, again, the book, Return of the God Hypothesis, you're having a discussion, that discussion you mentioned earlier with one of your atheist uh, interlocutors, you were debating him, and you point out, and I think this is a, a very good insight that maybe you can unpack further for us, you say that scientists have done a great job of explaining how the universe and life operate, but it had not offered adequate materialistic explanations for the origin of life mind or the universe what is this distinction between how things operate and how they originated well we see these wonderful regularities in nature and we see in which we characterize uh, using the laws of nature but mm -hmm. explaining uh, where for example biological systems came from or where the universe came from uh, these are types of events that are not ex are, are not explicable by reference to natural laws laws describe uh, regular patterns of, of um, antecedent and consequent cause and effect, but they, they don't explain where the systems came from in the first place. And so these, the, the study of origins has, it has been one of the things that has really um, put the materialistic approach to science on notice that there may be something more at work than just matter and energy. And we're seeing, when we look at, for example, the origin of life, we're seeing 
indicators that we would in any other realm of experience immediately recognize as the product of mind or intelligence. And these indicators, for example, the irreducibly complex molecular machines or the circuitry that we find in cells or the information storage, transmission and processing system that we've been talking about, these are indicators of intelligence that in any other realm of experience would point to a mind and yet they have not been explained by any materialistic evolutionary uh, um, theory. And, and therefore, uh, what I argue is that, that the inference to intelligent design is a best provides a best ex, the best explanation for those indicators. This is the, Again. the method of reasoning I use is called inference to the best explanation. It's not mm -hmm. an argument from ignorance or a gaps argument. It's an established method of scientific reasoning that we've applied to this these questions of ultimate origin. And the, and the the method suggests intelligent design is indeed the best best explanation. When we come back from the break, we're going to take an overview of these three discoveries that are well explained. And again, the book called Return of the God Hypothesis by Dr. Stephen Meyer. We're going to get into how they come together and where they lead us. Where do these three discoveries lead us? What kind of conclusions can we draw from these three discoveries about whether God exists or not, or an intelligence exists or not? So don't miss it. We're back in just two minutes. I'm Frank Turek. The show is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute, discovery.org, back in two. We're talking to Stephen Meyer today about his brand new magnum opus called Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries revealing the mind behind the universe. And Stephen, your first two books, which were seminal books in the, in the field of intelligent design, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, you point to the fact that there has to be an intelligence out there. That's where the evidence is pointing. You've got these great effects in cosmology and biology and they're pointing back to some sort of intelligence, but you never really got to the point where you explained who you thought the intelligence was. In this book, you do. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, right, uh, the, the first two books were about the, um, the importance of information in biological systems, both to explain the origin of the first life and to explain subsequent forms of life. Um, if you want to give your computer a new function, we know that you've got to provide new code, and it, turns out to be the same in, in, in biology. If you want to explain the origin of the first life or the origin of subsequent forms of life, new information needs to be provided. And I argued that the only plausible explanation for the origin of information based on our knowledge of cause and effect is an intelligence of some kind. Now, I didn't identify the designing intelligence. I, I acknowledged at the end of the book that I thought it had theistic implications, but I also acknowledged that there were other possible explanations for the origin of, of that information and the origin of life. One that had been proposed was the idea that there was an imminent intelligence within the cosmos, a, uh, uh, effectively a, uh, a space alien of some kind. And uh, as, as fanciful as that might seem to some, uh, no less a personage than Francis Crick himself floated this idea in a book uh, called Life Itself because he recognized the difficulty of explaining the origin of life on Earth. And he, suggests that maybe, he suggested that maybe life had arisen on some other planet out in space, and then eventually that life form had, had evolved into a complex higher intelligence, and then that intelligent agent in space seeded life first on Earth, was sent here somehow. Uh, Richard Dawkins actually floated the same idea in an interview at the end of a film called Expelled in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, not an, it's an idea that's out there, but I think it's implausible for two reasons. 
first um that may be an understatement but here we go first is that uh, that uh any being with well that uh in order to get life going somewhere else in the universe to solve the information problem uh and so to to get life to originate on some other planet, you have to get something that could contain information that could specify the arrangements of parts that would make for a biological system. Uh, secondly, uh, and so you've just pushed the information problem back out into space without answering it. But secondly, uh, and this is what I do in the new book, if you broaden the scope of inquiry to include physics and cosmology, you find evidence that clearly the imminent intelligence hypothesis can't explain. It certainly can't explain the origin of the fine-tuning of the universe from very beginning and, or very soon after, upon which it's ev uh, the, the origin and evolution of that alien intelligence would have depended. So, the, 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 in other words, the fine-tuning of the universe precedes the presumed evolution of some imminent intelligence within the cosmos, and therefore that that alien intelligence doesn't explain the, the fine-tuning that precedes it. And, and certainly the alien intelligence can't explain the origin of the universe that contains the alien intelligence. Mm -hmm. So neither of those two evidences are explained by the imminent intelligence hypothesis. Similarly, deism might explain the origin of the universe and the origin of fine-tuning, but the deistic God, by definition, doesn't act after the beginning. And yet we have evidence of design arising long after the beginning in the Earth's biosphere with the digital code and DNA and so forth. Um, materialism doesn't explain any of the three big evidences, the evidence from cosmology of a beginning, the evidence for the fine-tuning, or the evidence of, uh, uh, that we have in, of design and biology with digital code. And similarly, pantheism, the Eastern philosophy, uh, which conceives of God not as a conscious agent or a person, as a person, but rather as a kind of mystical force that binds the, the, everything together in, in, in some kind of a unity, um, that concept of God is, also lacks explanatory power because the deistic God is coextensive with matter and energy. God is in, in the material world. The material world is God. And so before there was a material world, there was no God, uh, there was no God of a pantheistic kind to do any, any causing. It, it would lack causal power to explain the origin of the universe because the pantheistic God doesn't have a mind or conscious awareness. It's not the right kind of entity to explain the fine-tuning, which implies a conscious intelligence. It similarly, it wouldn't explain the, the, uh, the digital code. So when you look at these... Uh, the several great metaphysical systems of belief, as well as the panspermia idea, the imminent intelligence idea, uh, none of them provide are causally adequate to explain the three pieces of evidence that we have, but instead classical theism with its affirmation of an intelligent agent who is also active in who's active in the creation but also who transcends the creation and can and therefore act as a cause outside of nature to bring nature into existence only classical theism has the causal powers and the relevant uh, attributes uh, it, it affirms a god with relevant attributes to explain all three of these evidences the, the universe had a beginning was fine-tuned from the beginning and then the emergence of information long after the beginning in the biosphere so, Steve, what are the attributes of this being then? We know we can't get all the way to Jesus just from natural revelation, which is what your book talks about. But we can get a being that could be Jesus, that could be the God of the Bible. So what attributes can you learn from the three great discoveries? Well, I think you can infer that the, the need for a transcendent cause that was also intelligent and which was in possession of free will to 
cause a change of state. And I think mm -hmm. you can also infer the, the, an agent that was active in the creation uh, and did not confine his activity to the very beginning, as, as deism would imply. Um, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, it, said, mm -hmm. uh, it uh, affirms that uh, from the things that are made, the unseen qualities of the creator are clearly manifest and then lists the two qualities his uh, eternal power and divine nature sometimes translated in older uh, translations as wisdom you have in the, in the hebrew bible the concept that in uh, by wisdom thou hast created all things in psalm 104 um, and so i think the the biblical view is that you can infer the wisdom and power of god from from the creation the heavens declare the glory of god um, but you cannot get uh, the, the whole of uh, the message of re revealed scripture from nature. Mm -hmm. And so theologians have really, um, made a distinction. Both Jewish and Christian theologians have made a distinction between what's called special revelation, the revelation that you only get from, from the scripture, and general revelation. So I think there are limits to, to what you can know from nature, but I've, I've pushed the argument, uh, to, I think, to those limits. And with with ample justification, I think we have we can infer the intelligence, and the power, and the activity of the Creator, both at the beginning and and within, the, and after the beginning, uh, and that I think gives you a strong indicator of the reality of a God, of the kind that the classical theism or biblical theism affirms. The book is called Return of the God Hypothesis. It's a must read. We're covering less than 1% of what's in the book, obviously, on the air here. Steve, I want to ask you one other question, because I know that some people, some ardent atheists and skeptics are going to naysay this book for whatever reason. They might say, well, your evidence isn't good. You don't have enough evidence, this and that. That's, that's obviously not the case. But talk a little bit about, if you would, Steve, because you talk about this in the book about the very fact that there's evidence for anything, that this is a rational world, that we have rational minds that can ascertain truths about the real world, real world seems to me anyway to be an argument for theism as well. How, what would you say about this? That? Yeah, this is something I address in the very last chapter of the book. It's uh, mm -hmm. the problem, in the, in the, it's in the field of uh, philosophy called epistemology. How do we know what we know? Yeah. How can we justify knowledge? And this has been the huge problem in in philosophy since the late enlightenment how do we justify our belief in the reliability of the mind because if our minds aren't reliable then we can't know the world reliably right. and so science depends upon presuppositions that make that give us confidence in the reliability of the mind if we don't have that confidence we can't be confident in science and mm -hmm. it it turns out that theism uniquely provides a justification for belief in the reliability of the mind because it says, hey, the mind was designed by a rational creator in a way that, and constructed with certain sense of assumptions that we all bring to our study of, of nature. For example, the, the assumption of the uniformity of nature, the assumption of causality that allows us to make sense of the world around us, these assumptions do. And if, if those assumptions that our minds instinctively and necessarily make are reliable, then we can know the world. If they're wrong, we can't. And, mm -hmm. it, and uh, so if the mind was designed in a way that allows us to know the world reliably, then we have good 
conf we can have good confidence in science. And theism provides a good reason for thinking the mind was designed reliably, whereas what's called naturalistic epistemology, with the idea that the mind evolved and it was that we, you know, that, that what we think was sort of programmed into us by the evolutionary process, that ends up having creating some big problems because evolution maximizes survival. It doesn't necessarily maximize the truth-seeking ability of the mind. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, and there can be, and there's some very good examples of how those two things can diverge. So anyway, I, I this was an argument that, that had tremendous impact on me as an undergraduate in philosophy. And I've kind of come back to it in later years. I actually shared it with a prominent atheistic philosopher in a in a conversation. And he, he said, hey, you don't need to explain this to me. He said, there's no question that, that theism uh, solves a lot of intellectual problems. And so in addition to the big three discoveries in science, the universe had a beginning, it's fine-tuning, and the, the, probably the origin of information. I think there are big philosophical questions that theism uniquely answers. Uh, one is it helps explain the reliability of the mind and therefore gives us confidence in, in the whole scientific enterprise. Another is the our, our instinctive belief in an objective morality, which all of us mm -hmm. reveal by our actions, even if we deny it in our philosophy. And I think theism can give a, 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 is uniquely positioned to give an account of what we mean by ought or should, uh, as opposed to just is. The is-ought distinction, I think, is adequately mm -hmm. explained by theism. Mm -hmm. So I think theism, as a, as a worldview, has unique and broad-ranging explanatory power, and uh, that's one good reason to believe it. Well, Steve, tell uh, folks about the website. We only got 20 seconds left. Tell them where they can go to find more information. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the book is available on all the online sellers, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, Indie Books, uh, all, those, all those folks. And there's a, a brand new website that our, our team at Discovery has created for the, for the book, returnofthegodhypothesis.com. And you can navigate from that website to the other books that I've done. And, uh, and we've got videos and debate clips. And, and we'll be posting uh, this interview and others up there very soon, too. Great stuff, Steve. That's Steve and Meyer, friends. Great being with you. See you next week.